So we are looking at the next petition in the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so I want to share a little story from when I was in fifth grade. It was the last week of fifth grade. And we had just finished the annual student-teacher softball game. And if memory serves me, we won. But that's not the point. I was walking back to class with a group of friends when, out of nowhere, I got hit in the head by something. After a minute of regaining my bearings, I got up, and my friends told me that a fourth grader, we'll call him Chris, because that was his name, He threw a can of Hawaiian punch at me. And it's a little fuzzy, a can, but I'm pretty sure it was an unopened can of Hawaiian punch. And it hit me in the head, and I went down, and it hurt. And I remember being furious. And I spent the summer and the better part of the following year envisioning how I would get this kid back. My one buddy still laughs about it because it was all I would talk about for like a year. I was just plotting and imagining all the possible scenarios of how I can pour out my wrath upon this individual. And to be honest with you, plotting and talking about it actually felt good. And so fast forward almost exactly one year, our paths cross again. Because I had graduated to middle school and he was still in elementary school. And so we didn't really see one another, but it was the St. Leo's Carnival in Lincroft, New Jersey. I went there every year. We still go every year. And I told my friends to let him know that I'd be by the baseball fields. To make a long story short, we got into a fight, which probably lasted all of two minutes. And we ended up becoming friends afterwards, which is that's what happens when you're a kid, right? But the reason I tell that story is because all of us have gone through situations where we wanted revenge, where we allowed unforgiveness and bitterness to overwhelm us. And the thing about unforgiveness and bitterness is that kind of feels good. It kind of gets you excited, at least for a bit, right? We've experienced it. The replaying scenarios over and over in our heads, considering what we could have done differently, what words we could have said, what phrases we could have used to really give it to somebody. And the plotting and rehearsing that we do, it, it kind of gives us a sense of control and some momentary satisfaction. But we all know what's true, that the path of revenge is ultimately a path that leads to pain. And while the path of forgiveness is a path that leads to life and to peace. And so like I said, this morning we're going to look at the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What we'll see is that forgiveness is both something we need and something that is required of us. It's something we need and something that is required of us. And we have a choice as followers of Jesus. We have a choice to either participate in the patterns of this world with the powers and the authorities or to participate in thy kingdom come. And what we'll find is that this choice has significant consequences attached to it. My prayer this morning is that we would be a church marked by grace and mercy, both individually and corporately, because we live in a world that celebrates vengeance and grudges, but we've been called to more. We've been called to something different. Pete preached about how we are to be a holy people, 
reflecting the holiness of God, meaning that there's something distinct about a Christian and about the church in particular. And so if you look at your outlines, we have a simple outline. It's actually a separate sheet now that's inside of your bulletin. We have three simple points. And the first point is a closer look at the text. And so this is an interesting petition because it differs in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And it differs in the original catechism that was given out to the church, the Didache. And so Matthew's version is, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Where Luke's version says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And it's in the Didache where it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So, so a couple of observations, and then I want to talk about a few things for the next 30 or so minutes. See, both of the versions that we look at are plural in nature, meaning once again that this petition has a corporate and communal appeal to it, which is interesting. We don't pray, forgive me my sins, as we forgive those who sin against me. We say, forgive us our sins and our trespasses and our debts. Both are grammatically connected to the previous petition with a coordinated conjunction, which means that there is a relationship between the two petitions, nothing major. And while the terms are different, debt and sin, scholars agree that sin is really the idea being conveyed behind this particular petition. But that doesn't mean we should just throw away the literal debt piece. Kind of hold it there, keep it in your heads, because that also matters. But first things first, let's talk about the plural nature of this petition. What might it mean for us to think through the corporate nature of this petition? First, what does it mean for us to ask for forgiveness? I'm going to get a little controversial here, because we live in a country that upholds personal responsibility. It's so important to us. As Americans, we, we value this. And I'm not saying we shouldn't because personal responsibility and culpability matters. But, but Jesus seems to be pushing us a little bit here as he teaches us to pray. Theologian and scholar Phil Riken, he says it like this. He says, while every Christian needs to confess his or her own personal sin, other sins are corporate sins. They're committed by nations, cities, churches, or families. They are no one's fault in particular, but they are everyone's fault in general. God thus holds us responsible not only for our individual sins, but also for the sins of our group. That is why people like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and Ezra in Ezra chapter 9 confess the sins of the nation. And so there is this sense of corporate responsibility when it comes to issues of injustice and sin, which I think, I believe, that should really move us to speak up and to act when we see sin being committed by whatever group we belong to. That matters. That matters. That, that we actually have these eyes to see when sin is entering into whatever community that we are a part of. Because what happens is, is that sin actually says something about the community and the individuals who are a part of that community. Where I wrestle with this most is when it comes to the church, the American church more specifically, but our own church in particular. We got to ask questions 
as followers of Jesus. We have to ask questions as members of a church. Are there skeletons in our closet that need to be dealt with? Have we aided and abetted sinful patterns? Are there people and families we've sinned against with whom we need to seek forgiveness? The simple answer is absolutely. Of course there is. And while I don't know the details, and some of us sitting in this room might know some of those details, the question we need to wrestle with is, and this is really even for the elders of our church that I've been wrestling with this week, are are we humble enough to engage these questions as issues rise to the surface? And I'm preaching to myself because I'm the lead pastor here, and and, and I'm studying this text, and I'm I'm like, oh, man, like, I'm sure there's stuff in our closet. I've only been here for a short while, and and I've seen things. Are we humble enough to recognize where there's sin in our midst, to confess that sin, to not sweep it under the carpet, which which as we've, if if you have any sort of of understanding what's been happening in, in evangelicalism over the last year and a half, what we're seeing is this reckoning where, where people were sweeping sin under the carpet in order to protect the institution as if God's church needs our protection. Oh, but, but God is actually calling us to be humble, to recognize when we've sinned, to recognize when whatever institution we're a part of sins, and to confess that sin. Guys, I don't have answers here. i, I got to be perfectly honest with you. I wrestled with this. And and what I've come to the conclusion is that as things come up, my prayer is that we would never be a church that seeks to protect the name of Redeemer Fellowship above the name of Jesus. And that's what we've seen happen in so many institutions. And I'm sure it's happened here too. I'm sure it has. And we're all culpable. There's a corporate element to sin. At least that's what the Bible says. Second, what does it mean to corporately forgive those who sin against us? Right? There's two elements to this petition. Forgive us as we forgive others. I think there are, are, are levels here that we need to wrestle with. I think the big picture, to be a church marked by, grace and, by the grace and mercy of God, a, kingdom, a kingdom-minded community of faith, we need to be a people who move toward the effects of sin with grace, kindness, and truth. We've talked about this a couple times over the last number of weeks. That we move toward the effects of sin with grace, kindness, and truth. Do we hold out a hand of grace and mercy toward sinners of this world, or do we stand in judgment over them, serving as judge, jury, and executioner? I mean, questions that we need to wrestle with that I've been wrestling with. How do we engage those struggling with same-sex attraction? How do we come along those come alongside those who are caught in addiction? What is our posture toward the broken, the outcast, those who have sinned their way into the difficult situations they're facing? That's something about Americans. Like we, we don't necessarily we don't have much compassion on people who've kind of made their own bed. That's hard for us to to wrap our heads around. Why? Personal responsibility. We we value. That's a value of ours. Again, not that we should throw that value to the side. But last time I checked, we've all sinned our way 
into being enemies of God, and it was God who sent his son Jesus to die on our behalf so that we might have life, the forgiveness of sins. And so do we, do we have the same grace toward others that God has had toward us? I want to read from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the point of that passage. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do we display the same grace toward those struggling with sin as God has lavished upon us? I mean, lavished upon us. We all know our own stories, right? We all know the things that we've struggled with. In fact, as I say these words, I'm sure things are popping into your head that you might have done over the course of your life, and you're sitting here like, God, you forgave me for that? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, he has. He has. I wrestle with this. I know where I've been. I know what I've done. I know the thoughts that that have gone through my head. And God lavishes grace and mercy upon us. He lavishes it upon us. Oh, he loves us so much, Redeemer. He loves us so much, and he forgives us. Personally speaking, what is our posture toward those who have sinned against this church? In more personal ways, those who maybe we have felt abandoned by, betrayed, whatever the case may be, again, the answer has to be, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, if this is to be called a church, it has to be grace. It has to be mercy. It has to be forgiveness. If it's anything other than that, then this isn't church. This isn't church. This is just a couple of people hanging out on a Sunday morning singing songs and, and, and listening to a guy like talk about stuff, right? It's not church. It's not church. Man, we need to be marked by that. We need to be marked by grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. As we forgive those who sin against us. To call ourselves the church means to humbly acknowledge our own sin, both corporately and individually, while at the same time being a people marked by the same grace and mercy we so desperately need. But there's more here. There's more here. There's always more. Once again, the teachings of Jesus are going to ruffle a few feathers. Let's take a look. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And so this little word as and the word for in Luke's version both carry with them a causal or conditional element to it. Be a little nerdy here with some grammar. There's a causal or conditional element to it. Forgive us our debts because... We have also forgiven our debtors. In other words, there's something about the way we posture ourselves toward those who have sinned against us that reveals something about our relationship to God. There is something about the way we posture ourselves toward those who have sinned against us that reveals something about our own relationships with God. What I'm not saying, 
I want to be careful here. What I am not saying, we do not earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. The forgiveness we possess in Christ was achieved through his death, burial, and resurrection, obtained by grace through faith because a loving God has called us to himself. That's true. However, what I am saying, if our bent is toward bitterness, unforgiveness, and grudge holding, and we're cool with it, then the Christianity we are claiming is a Christianity that cannot save us. Do you guys hear what I'm saying here? That's really important that we wrap our minds around that. If our bent is toward bitterness, unforgiveness, and grudge holding, and we're okay with it, then the Christianity we are claiming is a Christianity that cannot save us. I want to read a couple of verses past the Lord's Prayer, verses 14 through 15 in Matthew chapter 6. It says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's what the Bible says. That's not something I made up. That's not something I'm trying to to fit into this text. That That is just black and white what it says in the text. One scholar says it like this. He says, it is not that God is unwilling to forgive us. But if... Despite God's unfailing eagerness to forgive, we on our side harden our hearts and refuse forgiveness to others, then quite simply we render ourselves incapable of receiving the divine forgiveness. Closing our hearts to others, we close them also to God. Rejecting others, we reject him. If we are unforgiving, then by our own act, we place ourselves outside the interchange of healing love. God does not exclude us. It is we who exclude ourselves. That's heavy. That's really heavy. It's something that we have to wrestle with. But it is something that the text lays out very clearly. Very clearly. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 35, and this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Before we read, right? The thing about forgiveness, both the forgiveness we receive from God and the forgiveness we're expected to display toward others, is that it is directly tied to the kingdom and will of God. We see that in the prayer itself, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Adopted sons and daughters of God, which we are because we call him Father. Citizens of the kingdom seeking to live lives of holiness, manifesting the rule and reign of Christ on earth as it is in heaven, are both a forgiven and a forgiving people. It says this in Matthew 18. I'm going to read the first couple of verses and we'll talk about it and then we'll read the, the second half. So then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, 
may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Where he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. A couple of things that I saw here. One, Jesus asks a question and this is the response he gives. Right? Imagine if every time you asked a question, you got a story. Right? That could be exhausting sometimes. But right? I feel like Peter's probably like, yeah, no, I got you. 70 times 7. I, I don't need the story. Thank you. Right? That's how we are sometimes with maybe, maybe our parents. Right? It's like, all right, mom, thanks for the story. Um, I love my mother. Most of the parables in Matthew are parables of the kingdom. This one is no different. The kingdom of heaven, it says, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. In other words, let me show you how it works in the kingdom of heaven. It says the servant owed 10,000 talents. To put it in perspective, a talent was about 20 years wage. So that's a lot of money. I did math, but I don't do math. I came up with like maybe like $20 million an hour a day. Check my math. I don't know. That could be wrong. It's still a lot of money, whatever it is. Let's remember, though, this is a parable. This isn't like an, a story that happened. This is meant to explain something, meant to make a point. And then the servant, who knows he can't pay, so he begs. And the king, out of pity, which is such a cool word, it's a word which means to be moved in the inward parts. Like, like, like your innards are, 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 acti are activated because of this. To be moved in the inward parts, a, com a compassion that flows from deep within him. And so what does he do? He forgives him. He says, you know what? I don't need the $20 million. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need the $20 million. And so what's the point here? See, the king looks upon the brokenness of his servant, and he is moved to the point of forgiveness. And so if we're asking the question, what does 70 times 7 equal? A lifetime of debt. A lifetime of debt. And let's be honest. I'd say for most of us, $20 million is way more than a lifetime of debt. If there's someone in here in a different situation, that's good for you. That's good for you. Right? Well, no, bad for you. Right? I don't know. Whatever. It's a lot of money. But, 20, but, but, but 70 times 7, right? Because we always ask, well, well, like if I do the math, or carry the one, you know, like 70 times 7, like we're not looking for a specific number. The parable tells us that kingdom grace, kingdom forgiveness is radical and unrelenting. It like covers everything. A lifetime of debt is covered by this king's pity, his compassion, his, his innards being moved by this beggar's story. That's us, right? Pleading with our God, forgive us. We're begging for a lifetime of debt to be forgiven us. But the parable goes on. It says this in verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found out of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. There's, there's violence taking place here, choking him. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience. Notice both servants fall down begging and pleading for mercy. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Remember the debt? So also my heavenly father, here's the point of the story, guys. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The king displays compassion while the one who was forgiven displays wrath. We notice some of the parallels in this story. Both servants fall down and beg for patience. Yet the one servant who owed more than a lifetime of debt was forgiven, while the one who owed a hundred days of debt was thrown into prison. So less than $20,000. Again, check my math, please. The point of this parable is the point of the sermon this morning. The king rules in a way that is compassionate and merciful, handing out forgiveness like candy. To live in such a kingdom is to go and do likewise. Yet the servant who benefited from the compassion and mercy of the king chose to live by the rules of a different kingdom. He chose to live by the rules of a different kingdom. This is where it starts to hit home from us. With which kingdom are we participating in? Are we participating in thy kingdom come? Or are we getting in bed with the powers and authorities that are ruling over this age? That's the question we always have to ask. That's the question we always need to wrestle with. With whom are we sharing in? Right? We talk about at Redeemer Fellowship that we exist, that we might share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. Another way is to talk about that is participating in the kingdom of God. But see, the kingdom of God, as we've talked about over the course of this series, is, is already but not yet. So, so, so we live in this confusing in-between where, where we have these little outbreaks of the kingdom, where we have these kingdom outposts called churches, but yet the world is still doing their thing, even though they've been defeated. The powers and authorities have been defeated. God is still cleaning up the mess, right? Remember, D-Day versus V-E-Day, right? So we have to decide. Are we fighting with the allies or are we fighting with the Axis powers? Are we fighting alongside the king who's seated on the throne at the right hand of the father? Or are we jumping onto the other side with the powers and authorities? Oh, this is something we got to wrestle with, Redeemer Fellowship, individually and corporately. Where are we taking our cues from? Who are we allowing to show us the way? Forgiveness, grace, mercy, kindness, patience, love. Oh, that one, that's what needs to mark us. And I tell you what, everything that's being talked to us on the outside by the rulers and authorities, everything that's being preached to us, whether it's our social media accounts, whether it's Fox News, CNN, whatever the case may be, you've watched them. Are they promoting love, mercy, kindness, gentleness, peace, self-control, forgiveness? They're not. They're not. They're throwing grenades at the other team over and over again. Jesus has a very different 
understanding of what it looks like to live as his followers. A very different understanding of what it looks like to flourish in this world. It's forgiveness. It's laying ourselves down. It's turning the other cheek after we got knocked on the other so that we might get hit again. I don't understand that. There are times where, I mean, I know I didn't like that because remember my story from fifth grade. I didn't want to turn the other cheek. I wanted to turn his. And I wanted to turn it a, a, a shade of blue. That's what I wanted to do. Because why? I was participating in the wrong kingdom. And too often we're, we're lured into that kingdom. Why? Because it feels good. Because sin feels good, right? Feels good for a season. Unforgiveness feels good for a season. But we are effectively denying Jesus when we choose to, to withhold forgiveness and grace. To participate in thy kingdom come is to live a life of forgiveness, both individually and corporately. To choose any other way is to partner with the powers and authorities rather than the king of all creation. The, cre the, the question we need to wrestle with is whether or not we truly believe that God's kingdom has arrived in the person and work of Jesus. Scholar and, and, and pastor says it like this, N.T. Wright. He says, having received God's forgiveness, we are, to we are to practice it among ourselves. Not to do so would mean that we don't grasp what's going on. As soon as we refuse to forgive, we are saying, in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived. I don't think the forgiveness of sins has actually occurred. Failure to forgive one another isn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. Rather, it is cutting off the very branch we're sitting on. Yes, catch that? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a church. And it's hard. That's hard. My plea with us this morning is not that we would perfectly forgive. Yeah, that'd be great, right? But that's not going to happen. We know that. My plea is to examine ourselves. Are we cool with it? Are we okay? Are we comfortable? Do we celebrate unforgiveness? Because if that's the case, then the Christianity we're claiming is not a Christianity that can save us. It's just not. And that's what Jesus says. That's what the parable's about. That's what the Lord's Prayer is saying. And that's what those two verses after the Lord's Prayer are saying. If that's something that we are so comfortable with, if unforgiveness and bitterness is something we are so comfortable with, then we don't know Jesus. That's heavy. And that does not mean I'm preaching salvation by works. That means I'm preaching, have we been saved by grace? Have we really been saved by grace? Flip with me to Colossians chapter 2, which is our final point this morning. I have verses 13 through 15, but I think I'm just going to read the whole section. It goes like this. Verses 6 and following. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I think it's interesting, just to, make it a, just to make a little side note, that when Paul writes these letters to churches, he's talking to the whole church. 
And sure, individually we need to do these things, but these are instructions for the community of faith. So he tells the community of faith, walk in him. See to it in verse 8 that no one is taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I mean, think about it. Isn't that what unforgiveness is though, right? We're being held captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. And for him, in him, verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, all of us, were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him couple things. We've been made alive in Christ. We were dead and now we're alive. And all of our trespasses and sins are forgiven. Meaning that our record of debt, that 20 million, that lifetime upon lifetime upon lifetime of debt, it's been nailed to the cross. We don't own it anymore. We don't own it anymore. And and if we think that partnering with the powers and authority, those minions of Satan might, might give us any sort of flourishing in this life, look at what it says about them. They've been disarmed. They've been put to open shame, triumphed over by the person and work of Jesus. I, I want to read something from from N.T. Wright's commentary on this. It's a little long, but it gives a little bit of the historical backdrop of what it means that these powers and authorities were put to open shame. It says, in the ancient world, they didn't have cars. Instead of flags, they had often had standards, military emblems stuck on poles. But they knew how to celebrate triumphs over hated enemies and how to do so with maximum symbolic impact. In a world without electronic or printed media, victorious armies and generals would demonstrate to the folks back home what a splendid victory they had won by bringing back the spoils of war. This would consist of all the booty they'd captured, a long and bedraggled line of prisoners, and if possible, right at the end of that line, the king of the nation they'd just defeated. Then as the climax of the party, the king would be ceremonially executed, just like burning a flag. And so when the Romans crucified Jesus of Nazareth under the sign that said he was king of the Jews, that's more or less what they thought they were doing. They hadn't thought he was worth taking back to Rome. He hadn't, after all, been leading an army or a serious military revolt. But every crucifixion of a rebel king, even a strange one like Jesus, was another symbolic triumph for Rome. And hence, 
in Jewish eyes for the power of paganism as a whole. Anyone looking at the cross of Jesus with a normal understanding of the first century world would think the rulers and authorities stripped him naked and celebrated a public triumph over him. That's what they normally did to such people. Now blink, rub your eyes, read verse 15 again. On the cross, Paul declares God was stripping the armor off the rulers and authorities. Yes, he was holding them up to public contempt. God was celebrating his triumph over the principalities and the powers, the very powers that thought it was the other way around. Paul never gets tired of relinquishing, relishing the glorious paradox of the cross, God's weakness overcoming human strength, God's folly overcoming human wisdom. That's incredible, right? I mean, check it out. What's he saying? That the Romans thought that they were putting Jesus out to open shame, stripping him naked on the cross, striking some nails through his hands and his feet, putting a mocking crown over his head, mocking him by putting king of the Jews over his cross. And what was happening all along was that Jesus, God, was flipping the script and saying, oh, no, 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 no. What you think you're accomplishing, you have no idea what I'm doing. I am crushing the powers and authorities. I am crushing death. I am crushing sin. And you're going to see, because in just three days, I'm going to be alive and well. And I'm going to be seated at the right hand of my heavenly Father. And so the question that we need to be asking ourselves, with whom do we want to participate? With whom do we want to participate? From whom do we want to get our marching orders from? Oh, we got to wrestle with that, Redeemer Fellowship. In forgiving one another, we are demonstrating the forgiveness we both need and possess in Christ while also pointing to the arrival of God's kingdom. If we are truly a forgiven people, then we must without question be a forgiving people. We don't have an option. And I tell you what, as we know that the, the, the Lord's Prayer is, is found in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and the Sermon on the Mount is all about what it looks like to flourish in this world, which is so counterintuitive to what we've been taught by the powers and authorities. When we forgive, when we lay our rights down individually and corporately, that's when we flourish as a people. That's when we become more and more human. Because Jesus was the truly human one, is the truly human one. The very image of the invisible God. What we were always intended to be prior to the fall. And so when we live out unforgiveness and sin, when we participate in the pattern of this world, we are less and less human. But when we bend our knee to King Jesus, when we allow his grace to wash over us, and when we give that grace out like candy to others who have sinned against us, we show the world what God is like. And we draw nearer to our king. And we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we celebrate communion every week here at Redeemer Fellowship. It's at this table, like I just said, 
that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And it was through the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus that we can stand forgiven, both individually and corporately. And here's the thing, we cannot have one without the other. We cannot have forgiveness without being forgiving. We must receive that forgiveness and we must in turn extend that forgiveness to the world around us. Grace, kindness, and truth must be what marks us as a church so that the world might see Christ. That's what it means when we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's good news. It's good news. Let's pray. Graciously, heaven, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you so much. We are so grateful for the grace that you have poured out, lavished out upon us, Lord God. We don't deserve anything that you've given us, Father. That is so overwhelmingly true. We have sinned against you. We have sinned against our neighbor. We have loved this world over the kingdom. Father, I pray, Lord God, that we would recognize that and throw ourselves on your mercy, Lord God. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.